Hi everyone, I'm Tara Mont, and you're listening to the Trust and Thrive with Tara Mont podcast. I created this podcast along with my blog and brand to hopefully inspire others to live their most authentic life. I truly believe that we all have the power to live a life we love, and to do so, it's so important to be in tune with ourselves and be open to growing and evolving. I believe that once we can trust ourselves in our vision, that's when we can thrive. So with this podcast, I plan to discuss all things to do with self-reflection, personal growth, mindsets, and self-belief, all aspects that affect us in our everyday life. If you feel connected to my message and want to listen more often, I will be sharing one podcast a week, so make sure to subscribe and stay tuned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of the show. It's finally starting to feel like fall a bit in LA. It's still really, really warm, but (laughs) I'm just waiting for fall weather to finally wear some sweaters and just get cozy. What's most important is that we vote right now. I hope you have either sent in your ballot or that you have plans to vote in person in some way that's safe. It is so, so vital right now. So I hope you double check that and let's create that change we we need. So that's if you're in the US. And if you're not, you're not able to vote. Thank you for being here and for listening. I appreciate that. I always love to know that there are listeners, not just from the US. So welcome. Thank you for being here. And so to introduce this week's guest, her name is Dr. Colleen Reichman. Dr. Reichman is a licensed clinical psychologist practicing in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She works in her private practice, Wildflower Therapy. She's recovered from an eating disorder, and this experience sparked her passion for her work. She's also an advocate for intersectional feminism, body liberation, fat positivity, and health at every size. She speaks at national and regional eating disorder conferences and writes about body image and eating disorders for More Love Project Heal, The Mighty, Recovery Warriors, Adios Barbie, and more. You can follow Dr. Colleen Reichman on her website, ColleenReichman.com, and also on her Instagram, Dr. Colleen Reichman. This was such a wonderful episode, touching on such an important issue and topic that I think so many of us have dealt with, especially if you're on social media. There's no doubt you've seen people promote a certain body image and size in the diet culture, and that can be very detrimental. So we get into that in this episode. We talk about even reparenting around food and just taking care of yourself and your well-being, and even maybe following people who have a different outlook on the diet culture, on fitness and health, and whatever works for you as long as it's a healthy choice for you. Because once again, everyone's body's different. And so you just have to listen to your body and find support and help if you don't know what that looks like, if you don't know what that healthy relationship looks like and you need that stepping stone. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Let's get right into it with Dr. Colleen Reichman. Hi, Colleen. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course. So can you start off telling us about yourself and what you do and what inspired you to get into the field you're in? Sure. Um, So I am a licensed clinical psychologist and I have a private practice called Wildflower Therapy in Philadelphia. And I specialize in the treatment of individuals who are struggling with eating disorders, body image issues, 
um, as well as things like anxiety, depression, self-harm, and trauma. So I think what inspired me was probably uh, my own struggle with an eating disorder throughout high school and also college, and then actually a little bit of grad school as well, um, which is interesting because originally I was like, I am going to go into psychology and never talk about eating disorders again, and certainly never be a clinician that works with anyone with eating disorders. But then as I, well, as I got into grad school, I had a relapse and then dug myself out of that and started to get better and better as the years went on and then had some experience working as a a therapist for college students with body image issues. And from there, the transition was just natural to working with people who had eating disorders. And I found like, I loved it. It was like, I can't even describe how much it clicked in. And I felt like I had an empathy chip for the whole struggle. And Mm -hmm. I was like, I can't look back. Like this is, this is like a passion and a calling and I'm ready. And I just took off from there. That's amazing. And I know you talked about working with college students. Can you talk about your experience with that age group maybe and how you noticed, you know, their effects with body image and eating? Sure. That's actually still, I would say, 75% of people who I work with now in my private practice are college students. So it's still my primary population, mm-hmm. which I'm not sure why. I think I also, I think of myself as like much younger than I am. So I'm like, cool. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Let's talk about TikTok and stuff to college students. So I just love them. I love that population. And I did even in graduate school, like I worked at um, University of Scranton, their counseling center, and then Marywood University's counseling center. And then now I work with students from Temple and, um, University of Pennsylvania, Drexel. I worked at the College of William Mary's Counseling Center for a while. So I just, I've just been surrounded by college students for a while and love that population. I think that it's so important to have eating disorder specialists that work with college students because it's one of the biggest times of life that eating disorders emerge. And it's just like a hotbed for, even if it's not eating disorders, disordered eating and body image issues because it just, I think it's like the nature of the beast when it comes to the college environment. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. And I know you have a lot of posts that relate to that. You know, you have one post I loved about like Halo Top and just admitting that Ben and Jerry's is so much better. And I feel like I went through that exact thing when I was in college. You know, I was a little into that fitness lifestyle and and I'm like, you know what? Like Ben and Jerry's is so much better. What a waste of, you know, like me enjoying myself. And obviously everyone's different and it's, it's up to them, but I totally appreciate your posts. And so I'm curious as to what even inspired you to start your Instagram and if you thought so many people would resonate. Yeah, I started it, I believe it was 2016. And this is a source of pride for me because I feel like I was on Instagram um, earlier than like the therapy. Cause I know there's, it's kind of a trend now. There was even like, I think it was a New York times article called like Instagram therapists or something. Yeah. So I, I think it's, um, it, I was doing it a little bit earlier than other people in 2016. And I, what I wanted to do originally was just an account that's more psychology and little messages of hope out there to, I don't know, help spread the word, I guess. And I was also, I was ending my postdoctoral fellowship and it was right before starting my next job. So I had this time to dedicate to this. And then, yeah, it just took off over the years and at some point started to grow exponentially. And I never expected that it would be um, 
to the size that it is now. I definitely did not think it would resonate to this extent. That's incredible. And I think it is so important to have that on social media because I know for myself, it's affected my mental health, not even realizing the people I follow, my explore page. It was just a very specific demographic that would make me feel worse about myself and just discovering that there are so many pages and outlets and niches that help you with whatever you're dealing with is so inspiring. And so I'm curious as to even right now, like what you see online, obviously people, they're selling skinny teas and so many things. What are some toxic maybe sayings? I know you've talked about no days off, things like that, that you've seen a lot that you think are not healthy? Yeah, I think it's definitely shifted over the years because the first thing that came to mind, like when I was in college, I would, I think the whole like nothing tastes as good as skinny feels was. I hate that. (laughs) I can name so many things that taste better. Yeah, it makes no, yeah, yeah, it makes no sense to, I'm not tasting skinny. Yeah. But I like definitely remember saying that in college. I think I've talked about this on other podcasts, but it's not really a saying, but I remember when I was in college, there was a sorority house that had, it was eat, drink, and be merry. And they crossed out eat. And so it just said drink Mm. and be merry with like the eat crossed out to kind of, I don't know. It's, it's all those sayings and messages like that, that I remember. But now I do feel like it's shifted to be fit. There's so many fitspo Mm -hmm. sayings like no days off um, or sweat is fat, (laughs) crying, Um, or there's another one, like no days off, like no excuses. Yeah. No excuses. Like weird fitness. Like those sayings are everywhere. If you don't tailor, I feel like if you don't tailor your Instagram feed to be very, um, specifically like anti-diet, that will just all be everywhere. It's almost like that toxic positivity too, of like, just be happy all the time. Like, I feel like I used to see pages like that. Even I, you know, I can admit that when I started, I thought, you know, like, oh, good vibes only. And I didn't realize how toxic that was actually. And so it really is important to like tailor to that. And so can you talk about the connection from your work that you've noticed between even trauma and, and eating disorders, for example, and how the emotional and the physical connect in that sense? Yeah, there, I forget the exact statistic, but there is a huge overlap between people who have had trauma um, of all different kinds and people with eating disorders. It's just, mm-hmm. it's, I believe it's the majority of people with eating disorders have some type of trauma. And I think it can be argued that, you know, there's the whole continuum theory of trauma. There's the small T trauma and big T trauma. And there's theories that say that we all kind of have small T traumas at least you know, throughout our lives. So it makes sense that there would be overlap with eating disorders. But um, I think eating disorders are like a really efficient coping mechanism for trauma in the sense that they numb you out. They disconnect you from your body really, really well. They disconnect you from emotions. Like I remember when I was in my eating disorder telling this therapist, like, I feel like in my life, I'm in a constant carnival and there's like a like really loud music happening over here and there's people fighting over here and there's just like mayhem going on and people screaming at me. And then when I'm doing this, I can just be like chicken, you know what I mean? And then tune everything out, which I think eating disorders, that's like the way it is yeah. for a lot of people. So if you're constantly experiencing symptoms as a result of trauma, it can just be an adaptive mechanism that develops, like either, you know, binge purge, restrict to sort of tune that all out. 
and mm-hmm. disconnect from your body. Not that I want to say it's, of course, I'm not saying it's a good mechanism because long-term I think it really hurts us obviously, but it's certainly adaptive and helpful for people in the moment, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like a lot of it from what I've noticed and talked to people too, it's like that sense of control. Like if you, there's nothing else that you feel like maybe you have control over in your life, at least you know how many calories you're eating that day, or you know you can cut those carbs or whatever makes you feel good in that sense. And I feel like a lot of it can be cultural too, because I come from a Persian household and I know every culture is different, but if anything, it's like, you need to eat more or you lost weight or, you know, it's always pointed out like you need to finish the food on your plate or it's, it's disrespectful if you don't accept the food. And then I guess in other cultures, it can be like, you know, don't eat as much or what are you doing? So can you talk about those effects of even childhood and culture and how that shame around food and what you need to be doing affects, you know, the adult life? Yeah. I've heard it said, like called the clean plate club almost for some, there's like cultural messages of, yeah, you have to finish all the food on your plate or, or just different cultures, I think have different, um, you know, ways of, or different comfort levels. And when it comes to commenting on bodies, like parents from one culture might be, you know, more into commenting somebody's gained weight or, um, I think it's definitely, it basically shapes how we think about food and bodies because there are our families mm-hmm. most of the time they're our first messengers. They're our first, like, this is what I should do with food. This is how I should relate to it. This is how sh- I should feel about my body. Uh, my mom feels like this way about hers. Mine probably will look like hers. You know, it's just, there's no way that that doesn't help to shape some of the way that we interact with food in our bodies. Um, that's not to say the field of eating disorders has historically like blamed parents specifically to a really large extent, which I disagree with because parents can't cause eating disorders, but they can be a piece in the puzzle. And I think just our different attitude towards food and bodies and what we're surrounded in our family culture growing up, it, it's undeniable that that does something to shape the way that we relate to food if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And that's really hard. Say, for example, you are a mother, father, parent who, you know, you want to be careful with how you approach your kids about food and even just behave yourself. But of course, you're going to have relatives and family. You're going to go to Thanksgiving and events. Or like, what are some tips, I guess, on helping your kids have a healthy relationship? And I know it's not all in your control because there's media. They'll see friends. They'll grow up. But what are some tips you have in general? I think the biggest tip, I think the biggest thing parents can do is work on their own relationship with food and their bodies and which obviously much easier said than done. But I do think that that is huge because if you model, I mean, it's one thing to say, like, tell your kids it's okay to eat all the foods and tell your kids like your body's going to do what it wants to do and any weight is okay. It's another thing to say that, but then not walk the walk like say all that stuff, but then still maybe be stuck in diet culture yourself. So I think working on your own relationship with food, working on being more accepting of all bodies, working on just under, you know, accepting your own set point, accepting your children's body, wherever they want to be, that is like a game changer. And teaching, I also think teaching kids fat positivity is another game changer because it's a counter to our societal message right now. And if you can start to sort of help them understand that early, it's 
just incredibly important and helpful. Mm -hmm. I agree. And it's like you said, it's crazy to see those posts too. People will comment like, oh, now you're promoting like health risks and they just take it to the extreme of it's, it's so toxic. How important do you believe boundaries are even whether you're recovering yourself or, you know, you have kids just to be able to say, I don't want to talk about this right now, or can you please not bring up my body or how I look? It's very triggering for me. How important do you believe those boundaries are? Oh, so important. Like so important. And if it's not just with family, I think it can be like once you're an adult with coworkers and friends and there, because diet, we're diet culture is like the water that we're swimming in. So we can't necessarily avoid tra- Like it's going to happen. People are going to say things and people have their own relationships with food and triggers are everywhere. So putting up boundaries and being able to comfortably say like, I actually don't talk about um, or I actually don't believe in intentional weight loss and I'm not into talking about it or, you know, practicing like funny ways to set the boundary and change mm-hmm. the subject. Like there are so many more interesting things to talk about than bone broth. Like let's, you know, shift the subject can be, and literally practicing it so that when you're in the moment, you don't freeze. Um, I think is like, it's life changing and essential. And we have to do it with our family. Most of the time we have to do it with friends, coworkers, anyone that's still really stuck in all of it, which is the majority of people will probably have to do that at some point or another. And, you know, it's not always on us. I think it's some people get in the habit of like, I have to educate everybody. Like I have to provide education all the time about why this is not Mm. okay. And that's like an exhausting thing to do. And even me as an eating disorder psychologist, I'm not educating everybody. Like I'm not in, Mm -hmm. you know, an Uber and the person, I'm not always saying like, well, this is why diet culture is, you know, not good because it gets exhausting from time to time to always be going against the message, the cultural message. So finding ways to shift the subject that are just more lighthearted or um, not educational, but just like, here's my boundary is is just so, so important. Can't stress that enough. It's so important. And so um, what advice would you give to someone who has certain limiting beliefs and certain beliefs that they grew up with in their household or just that they think about food, about body image, whatever it is, it can be so hard to unlearn that. And so what are some even starting points, ways people can start if they don't necessarily have access to therapy in this moment to start unlearning those? I would definitely say starting with a foundation of self-compassion is really important just because there's an episode of um, Food Psych, Alan Lewinowitz talks about diet mentality kind of being like a religion for some people that it's, you know, it provides like structure, it provides socialization, it provides like rules and ways that we engage in life. So if you're feeling right now, like that's really important to you still like the keto diet is really important or just making sure you're controlling your weight still feels very important to have some self-compassion because it's so understandable. It can feel like it's a part of our personality and identity. So that I always say like, let's start with that. Um, And in terms of if you do want to move to like pushing back and challenging, I do think that, um, well, listening to podcasts like this is great and immersing yourself in the anti-diet message, whether that's social media or things like podcasts or buying books like anti-diet or um, fuck it diet is another good book. 
there's other ones though that are great, like really immersing yourself in the message. Because if you think about it, we, from the time we're zero, get all these diet messages day in and day out, like hundreds and hundreds a day, like just little messages here and there. So it takes a lot of immersing yourself in the opposite message to push back and to feel like it's starting to budge at all. So having patience and immersing yourself in the message, like reading the books, podcasts, social media, all really, really important. And then therapy, if you do have access to it, is can be life-changing too. Just having like somebody, a team member there with you, walking you through it and helping you challenge things and supporting you, um, as well as a dietitian can be life-changing for some people. So, but I totally get like, those are privileges that is the unfortunate reality. So not everybody has access. And I know a lot of people have shame to even ask for help in that sense, or they maybe don't want to admit that this is an eating disorder or you think, oh, well, I'm not making myself sick or I'm not, you know, looking anorexic from what I've seen. There's so many, there's like such a spectrum of what it can look like, even exercising too much or trying to be so healthy. How can you even tell if there, you should be asking for help or if you should be reflecting on that? If that makes sense. If you're thinking about asking for help or thinking about like, would this make sense? Do I, do I deserve this? Am I sick enough? All that. Then you should be asking for help essentially, because I, my view is if you don't have to be underweight, you don't have to be like purging. You don't even have to be like, you know, doing much of anything with food. As long as you're feeling very stressed in that relationship, or as long as you're feeling like really, just unsafe in your body or like upset about how you exist in your body and show up or how you interact with food. That's it. Like you are deserving of help and you don't have to have, you know, clinical, clinical levels of concern to warrant that. Um, I kind of wish therapy, we treated it more like, like we don't always, we're not always like in crisis mode when we go to the doctor. Exactly. The annual checkup. Yeah. Yeah. Like we make annual check, we check in or even like, like, I don't know, my throat hurts a little bit. Like, I should probably check this out. Or like, I have a cough. It's not whooping cough yet. Like, I'm not at the hospital, but I'll go to the doctor and get some support. Because mental health, it's very similar to physical health at the end of the day. It's a spectrum. It's a continuum. And we travel along the continuum, all of us. Every single person travels along it. And it changes throughout our lives. So there's no, like, end goal just like with physical health, there's no like end goal of like pristine mental health. Like we will all be traveling and deserve help at different points in the continuum all throughout our lives. Mm-hmm. It's funny you say that because it's very common for people to say, oh, I have to go get a physical checkup or even go to the gym and take care of my physical body, but not focus on the mental health aspect of it. And so what are some ways you even practice mindfulness? And with that said, how would you define self-love in that case? Mm. I really suck at mindfulness. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate your honesty. (laughs) It's like a skill that I've always, I can teach it as like an adjunct to therapy or a skill. Like, you know, I can teach it. I really struggle with it for myself. So, um, but I mean, I, I do think things like, sort of mindfulness things that involve like moving my body, like dancing, putting on a song and dancing is very important to me. That's something and every day I practice one mindfulness technique that I can personally use really efficiently is 
when I'm, cause I have an eight month old and sometimes I, I was, you know, I had infertility for years. So I was, I try really hard to appreciate like being with him and just all the baby stuff, even though it's sometimes really hard. So once a day, at least when he's like asleep on me or I'm you know, sitting with him or something, I try to like close my eyes and be very, very in the moment. Like, okay, his skin against my skin and he's here. And like, what does it feel like holding him and just appreciate the moment and that I can do. So <laughs> I have mastered that one. But other than that, dancing for sure is a way to just show up in my body and um, be in the moment and not in the future and not in the past. Um, not good dancing, I should clarify. Just really, really like silly dancing, like to Backstreet Boys and stuff. Um, and you said, and how do you define self-love? Which is a really good question. I think I define self-love as having a foundation of respect for yourself and the ability to just be kind to yourself no matter what the circumstance like you can kind of always go back to kindness and compassion even if you are feeling angry at yourself like self-love I think you end up treating yourself like you would your younger self or like a like a little kid like you can be so angry at a little kid or so disappointed in the little kid but hopefully you default back to compassion anyway. Like I'm so disappointed in what you just did and I love you. And I think of self-love, at least sustainable self-love as that, like there's a foundation of respect and unconditional empathy and it doesn't have to be like all rainbows and butterflies all the time, if that makes sense. No, it definitely does. And I think I've tried to look at myself and my inner child and think like, what would I say to the child version of myself? I wouldn't put her down in this way or I would, you know, let her know that this is part of growing up. And so I think that's so important, the self-compassion around that too. And so how important do you believe self-compassion is and patience? I know you've brought both of those up, but especially when recovering and healing, because I think a lot of people look at recovery as like a destination or I've healed not realizing that, you know, you may, something may trigger you or you may have a moment of relapse in that case. And it's okay. You're human and it's a lifelong journey. And so what would you say to people who are so hard on themselves in those moments? Um, I think being hard on ourselves can be kind of a defense mechanism or just a way, another survival skill. Like if I try to be perfect, I will not get hurt, you know? So, and self-compassion can kind of feel vulnerable, but um, it's very important. And I do think the inner child, inner parent work, which can kind of sound like I get it turns some people off because it can sound a little like hokey, but it is really important to think of the fact. I mean, I feel like we all, it's like undeniable. We all have an inner child, like the younger parts of ourselves that have been there since we were born. Um, and then hopefully an inner parent as well, like that guiding, more mothering force. So I think self-compassion is necessary to get in touch with both and actually getting in touch with both can then foster self-compassion, like kind of learning to treat yourself as you would that little girl or little boy um, is essential, I think, to having a good relationship with yourself. And just like you don't expect like you're a child or you don't expect any little kid to be perfect, like to achieve perfect behavior and that's to me is like the perfectly healed thing. Like we are 
all human. And the sooner we realize that, the better. And if we can treat ourselves with the same like, love and compassion as we do children, we are going to be better for it because there is no perfect. It's, it's a disappearing mirage. You know, it's just perfection doesn't exist. So continually striving for it and healed and recovered and all that, it's a recipe for discontent. It's a recipe for living for the next, like, okay. It can also happen just with life milestones, I feel, like living for the next, like, okay, I got my degree. What's the next thing I can perfect? I can get, you know, married. I can get, I can have my family. Like, it's, you never achieve what you're looking for if you approach life in that way. So the alternative is compassionate, um, loving care for yourself. Definitely. And even just seeing other people, their highlight reels, it's so easy to compare to what we see. And so do you, is that something you notice a lot in your work, even just like comparison of the perfect relationship, the perfect body, the perfect lifestyle? Is that something you notice a lot with your clients as well? Yeah. And social media makes that so much harder in this day and age than I think it's been for any other generation because there's just picture like the whole relationship goals or like body goals. Like there's pictures, moments in time, just seconds in time that people then put up and we then look through it. And most of the time we go on social media, we're not in great psychological spaces anyway, because we're either bored or lonely if we're going on it. And those make us very vulnerable to things like comparison. So we're bored, lonely, looking at people's perfect snapshots and then thinking things like, oh, relationship goals or body goals. And it's just such a, it's so hard (laughs) and it can be so toxic. And I know everybody knows this, that it's the highlight reel at this point. Like, I feel like that's, we say that all the time, but it doesn't necessarily like matter when you're in that emotional space, when you're feeling vulnerable and you're just scrolling through, it's hard to bring that to mind all the time. Like this is a highlight reel. Like even I get caught in the trap because I follow bloggers for, I consider myself an amateur decoration person or like interior decorator, that's the word, an amateur interior decorator. And I follow these bloggers and I'll notice myself like, you know how they take pictures of their feet? Yes. And then you see the other side and they're like looking in such a weird like angle. It's so hard to do. That. Yeah. And it's like these perfect stoops for like fall, for example, with like pumpkins on either side and their feet and then this like perfect coffee cup. And I find myself, I forget to be like, that's not real. And it's just a snapshot in time. It's not real. It's really hard to remember that, I think. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's like we can know that, but seen it anyway it doesn't change anything and I know I've in the past I can relate because I used to take pictures of like my desk with my coffee and like most of it would just be a mess I would push everything (laughs) so I totally get that and it's like something even as someone who would post that is learning like maybe I don't want to put this out in the world or put this kind of image out of what seems like my reality in that case and so I think even that accountability and realizing your own life that you know you want to be careful with that is important. And so going back to specifically food and the beliefs we had growing up, can you talk about what reparenting looks like specifically around food? Yeah. I mean, I think reparenting really is this idea that we have, we all have an inner parent that is a more compassionate, more loving, mothering force. 
I think mothering is a really good term, whether you are identify as male or female, but just the mothering force inside of us um, that a lot of times sort of gets instilled and fostered by our own parents because they are the people who wear the palette and they're kind of the paint like showing us, well, this is what it looks like. Like this is what parenting looks like. So I think unfortunately if we have parents that are a little more withholding or critical or um, teach us that they're conditional with their love, we can end up modeling that, like acting that way with ourselves too. So reparenting I think first of all, you have to kind of go back and get in touch with your inner child first. Like what's she upset about and viewing eating disorder behaviors as your inner child trying to protect you is I think imperative. Um, so like the urge to restrict kind of getting in touch with, well, maybe this is like my, when did I start restricting? I was, you know, 13. Maybe this is more like that 13 year old self saying, this is really scary right now. You feel very worthless. Let's use this old go-to, you know, this old skill. It helped us then. Maybe it'll help us now. And reparenting looks like saying to that 13-year-old, look, I so get it. You're in such pain right now and you're trying so hard to feel better. And like, thank you, honestly, for trying. Like, thank you for saving us then and trying now. But, you know, there's a different way. Like we don't have to take it out on our body this time. We don't have to um, punish ourselves anymore. And we don't like, you know, we can use food in a different way or we can be compassionate and, and saying to ourselves, like, I got us, like, it's okay. Let's put down the restriction. I got it from here. And like, yeah, taking care of ourselves like a parent, like a mothering, compassionate, loving parent would do you know, people can listen to these podcasts, read the books, and they can have those realizations about themselves. And then say you see a loved one who is going through this. And it's really hard when you see someone you care about who maybe doesn't even recognize that there's a toxic or unhealthy behavior that they're performing. And so what advice would you have to someone on whether that is approaching a loved one without them getting defensive or a way to do it that's not, you know, controlling or trying to make you seem like you know the answers? It's so hard because it, there's so much that's out of your control, like when a person's ready to hear things or not. But I, I do always think that saying something is better than not saying something, like at a very base level. So just know that like you saying something is always going to be better than you turning away when a person's clearly in pain. But also knowing like no matter what I say now, there is the possibility that they're not going to be able to receive it. And that's okay. Like I'm still planting a seed. Um, as long as you're coming from a place of genuine concern, I do feel like humans can hear and receive a lot more than we give each other credit for. Like I always had a, I had a supervisor when I was in grad school that would say, throw your bricks wrapped in velvet. Meaning like if you are, upset, you know, worried about a person, just, you, you have to make sure that you're telling them in like a way that's velvety, like that's caring. And I go back, of course, compassionate and loving. So if you're coming from that place and you're trying to hold judgment and specifically anger, because I do think when it comes to eating disorders specifically or things like addiction, we can come from a place of anger because that can be human when there's a behavioral aspect to things but it's never helpful. Like anger's just the, it's, it's impossible to receive that way. So 
withholding judgment and anger and saying like, look, I'm so worried. I love you so much and I'm, I'm just worried and I want to talk about it and I want to open up this forum for you and you don't have to talk, but I want you to know like this is an open invitation and you know, you can also kind of go into here's why I'm worried. Like I'll give these reasons. Let's talk about it. I'm glad you brought that up because even like in my past with friends, I've seen, you know, a friend we were concerned about and other friends would say, you look so skinny or you look like this, what's happening? And it's just like almost bombarding them with this overwhelming feeling of like, it's like an interview and questions of making them feel guilty of, if anything, I feel like that pushes people away. And so I think also that reminder that you don't have to save someone, you can let them know and be there for them. But if they don't respond in that way, or if they don't get the help they need, that's not your case or your problem or on your shoulders necessarily. And so I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that's very common for people to think it's my responsibility. I need to help them and fix them and change them or do like, especially if I'm aware of what's going on, I need to enlighten them in that way. So I'm glad you brought that up. And when it comes to maternal mental health and body image, can you talk about like someone recovering and who wants to get pregnant and that's something maybe they're dealing with with an eating disorder or even just body image issues and then being pregnant, how that's a very normal thing that maybe people don't even talk about. It's like the beauties of being pregnant, but it could be very hard and a struggle. I mean, I've never been pregnant yet, but I can imagine that it's not all rainbows and highlight reels either. Yeah, I actually recently did a, like a poll on my Instagram and said for people who have been pregnant, did you find it liberating in terms of body image or hurtful? And I would say it was 50-50. Like 50% of people said this was the hardest time ever when it came to body image because my body felt out of control, wasn't mine anymore, it was expanding every day. And then about 50% said I felt like this was the best my body image ever was because I weight gain was encouraged, celebrated, and I was eating freely because people would kind of, society gave me permission, you know, I'm just growing a human. Um, so I would say go into it knowing that it could probably go either way. Like there's no right way to feel. I personally struggled in terms of body image during pregnancy, but I have friends who are also recovered that found it, like I said, liberating and wonderful. Um, no right way or wrong way, but preparing yourself for that. Getting, I truly think getting therapy, if possible, and working with a dietitian is so important because it's such a time, it's such a vulnerable time like that and postpartum. And the reality is, you will gain weight as you should. Like that's going to happen, and you're, there's going to be so much more focus on the number, like getting weighed every other week at the doctor, and people commenting how pregnant you look, how not pregnant you look how much are you exercising? That's too much exercise. That's not enough exercise. You shouldn't be eating that. You should be eating that. Like there's so many opinions. So really like getting a therapist if you can, and then also learning to tell people like set boundaries with when people are saying things to you or asking to touch your body and like getting really getting into the practice of continually setting boundaries and asking people to stop. And then the other thing I think is important is to, throughout the pregnancy, refocus when the body image thoughts are getting loud, refocus on like what's truly important. So for some people that, like for me, I would like put my hands on my stomach and close my eyes and be like, I'm so thankful that this is like a human being growing in me. That is wild, first of all. 
like almost sci-fi if you ask me and then second of all it's just like such a miracle like I'm making an eyeball right now probably like this is so cool and also I have a friend that would like journal to her baby like write letters each month like this is my your three months with me letter your four months and I think all of that really helps us to tune out the noise and tune into like what's really important, which is very obvious. And that's you and the baby and the fact that you're, yeah, growing a human, which is incredible, like beyond incredible. Mm -hmm. It honestly is. And even, you know, I haven't had a child yet and I hope to have kids. And I already imagine that, like, I want to embrace the, I want to embrace everything about it. And even the stretch marks say, I, carried a child that's incredible not like oh i need to bounce back to my old self because why would i want to be my old self at that point you know your new person you're forever evolving at this point you're a mother someone who's carried a human life and that's something i don't think we talk about as much it's like i need to get back to how i look like and i think you know obviously who you follow and surround yourself with is so important and so overall this show is about living your most authentic life and that means something different to everyone so for you, what does living your most authentic life mean? I think living my most authentic life means living in such a way that I'm continuously circling back to what does that knowing part of myself say each day? Like I do think we all, we come with this inner knowing and it's a voice that can get lost. It's a voice that eating disorders or things like addictions or just other things like that tend to drown out so we can get really out of touch with it. So living authentically means very much getting back in touch with that, knowing that I'll lose the voice all throughout the day for the rest of my life. Like that is what will happen. I will lose touch, but then always circling back and getting quiet and getting back in touch. Like, what does this voice say? What's the next best step? What do I really feel right now? What's that feeling telling me? You know, um, what do I actually want and where's the fear coming from? Like what, you know, kind of asking myself these questions all throughout the day and unconditional permission to do that, unconditional permission to lose the voice and then unconditional permission to bring myself back to the voice is my definition of living authentically. I love that. And I, I know you had a post that was similar to the idea of, I think you said something about like, once you're gone, people don't remember how you looked specifically or your eye wrinkles, something like that. And it's so true because even just in my own life, you know, when there's been loss, we talk about the joy that person brought or the way they, you know, made everyone in that room feel great in that moment or the laughter. That's something I think about very often. And so can you just talk about like even compliments that you think people can say that don't necessarily have to do with looks? And I know it's so hard when you first see someone you want to say, oh, you look great today or I love your shoes or you, you've lost weight or whatever. And so um, can you talk about how that's maybe been helpful in your own life and some suggestions you have on noticing other parts of a human other than that physical outward appearance? Yeah, I, I do think we are all conditioned to first compliment appearance. Um, so it's tough. I still struggle with like, because I love clothing and putting together outfits. So I'm still drawn to being like, I like your top or, you know, um, which is not, I'm not saying it's always a bad thing, but I do think to your point, we um, remember people like, when we're not here anymore, people, we remember how they made us feel. So, you know, making sure we tailor our compliments to that. 
like the feeling that the person gives you is so meaningful. Like you make me feel so happy when I'm with you or you literally light up a room when you walk into it. It's incredible. Or um, just complimenting something like creativity. Like I think at, you know, I know it sounds morbid, but to think about somebody's funeral and then they're reading the eulogy, I do think we would say like, this was an incredibly creative person. Like her art was, um, it spoke, like it just spoke to you when you saw it. So complimenting someone's creativity and, you know, their mind, like you are, their sense of humor, like you're so, I think you're so funny or like your sarcasm is on point or like. Best compliment, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Like it's just, that's really, I feel like, I do feel like hearing you are so funny. You take that home with you a lot more than you're so attractive because funny presumably will be there when you're 88. You're going to look very different when you're 88, regardless of how attractive you are now. So complimenting the things that will be with them when they're old and at the end of their life is always a good bet, I think. Lastly, what would you say to someone who maybe is struggling with food or an eating disorder right now? And they may realize it, they may not, but they just feel alone and they feel like there's no other side. What would you tell to that person about having that hope? I would say, first of all, I've been there. I'm so sorry you're going through this because it's just sucks. It's so hard and you're not alone. Like I want you to know that you are not alone. This struggle is making you feel like you're alone and that's so valid, but you're not. Um, and there is another side and if you feel like you'll never get to it or if you feel like everybody else will, but I can't, I'm the exception to the rule, that please know you're in good company with that thought too. That's almost like par for the course when it comes to this process. Um, but healing is there and it just takes taking the next the next right step, honestly. And so just consider taking that step. Um, and yeah, I really would want to hit the point home that they're just not alone because I think of all the things that lonely feeling is possibly like the hardest of the whole thing. So, and then I would hug them if they wanted to hug. I love that. Well, thank you so much for being here and for being so open and authentic. And I know, you know, you sharing your story and your work inspires and helps so many people. So thank you. And lastly, can you maybe let us know what's coming up next for you and your work and where listeners can give you a follow? Sure. Um, the most exciting thing that's coming up next is I co-authored a book with another therapist, Jennifer Rowland, and we have that book. And so it's called The Inside Scoop to Eating Disorder Recovery, Advice from Two Therapists Who Have Been There. We're so excited for it. It's like step-by-step, step, you know, these are some steps to take to recover. These are some things to focus on. It's full of like journaling prompts and our narratives that are woven throughout. Um, and that is coming out in March, 2021 so exciting um and people can find me at so my website is colleenreichman.com um, and my instagram is at dr colleen reichman and i am very foolish on tiktok recently which is also dr colleen reichman much less educational and informative i would say than my instagram so if you're looking for just more education and hope um instagram it is and it's at dr colleen reichman 
I love that. And I'm actually interviewing Jennifer in like a few months. So that's really exciting. I'll definitely want to talk about your book. Yeah, it should be great. And um, so thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story once again. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Colleen Reichman. We touched on so many important topics that I haven't touched on recently in, on the show. We've talked about a healthy relationship with food, body image, eating disorders in the past, like a long time ago, and even the connection between trauma, emotional healing, and eating disorders. But it's been quite a while, so I was really thankful to have Dr. Colleen Reichman on the show. I hope you were able to take something away and feel less alone. You can follow Dr. Reichman at Dr. Colleen Reichman on Instagram, and you can visit her website, ColleenReichman.com. You can also find me at Trust and Thrive, which is the Instagram for the show. And so thank you so much for being here. If you were able to take something away, please let me know. Please let Colleen know. You can send me or her a message. Let us know what you were able to take away, what stuck with you. I just hope you know you're not alone and that there's so much hope and light at the end of the tunnel, even if it doesn't seem like it now with the state of the world, with politics, with the pandemic, with just what we see. It's such a hard time. And yeah, it's easy to feel like you're falling back into maybe an unhealthy pattern you have, whatever that looks like. And so in that case, please don't be hard on yourself We're going through a pandemic. We're going through, if you're in the U.S. especially, but the whole world is affected by this in some way. This election, we're witnessing this time of of racial injustice that has always been there, but even now there's so much more we're witnessing. There's just so much happening that it's so easy to go back to these unhealthy patterns. And that doesn't mean like eating more or this and that. It means, you know, maybe going back to a toxic relationship or maybe restricting yourself in ways you shouldn't. You're not alone. Remember to practice that self-compassion and know that there are people out there who love you, who want to help you, and there are professionals who are there to help you as well. So that being said, if you've enjoyed the show and would like to leave a rating and review on Apple iTunes before the two-year birthday of Trust and Thrive, you can visit the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Apple iTunes, and you can leave a rating and review, which takes a minute, two minutes, It would mean so much if you would help out and do that. And that being said, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. I hope you take care of yourself, your mind, body, your soul. You do something that brings you joy. And I will catch you all next Thrive Thursday. 